it's, I'm actually surprised to see as many people are here today as there are. When we started the service, there were about 15 people in the building, and, and we thought, you know, there might be more watching online today than, than actually here in the service today. So I'm glad all of you braved the snow and made it here safely, and I'm already praying that you'll make it safely home because, uh, I don't know, is it still snowing? Okay. Yeah, yeah, it'll be fun. There is no basic tonight, by the way. You may have assumed that, some of you basic youth, but uh, uh, traded texts with John. The failures weren't able to make it this morning. They got slipping and sliding, as, as many of you did on your way here this morning, didn't you? So, so this morning, rather than talk about the snow, I'm going to ask all of you to think. This won't be a particular uh, Christmas message, although there's definitely a Christmas uh, uh, relation. We won't be telling the Christmas story per se, but to warm up your thinker, I want to have a little bit of a quiz here. I want you to name that Christmas song, okay? I want you to match the words with the title of the right Christmas carol, okay? And here's our first one, 5 p.m. to 6 a.m. without noise. Silent night, that's right, okay. How about minuscule hamlet in the Far East? That was easy, a little town of Bethlehem. How about adorn the vestibule? Deck the halls, very good. You guys are really good. Maybe you don't need to think as much as I thought you did. How about this one? Listen, aerial spirits vocalizing musical harmonies. Hark the herald angels sing. All right. How about this one? This is a pretty easy one. Monarchial trio. We three kings. Very good. How about this one? Assemble everyone who believes and obeys. O come all ye faithful. Very good. We're not getting any of these past Larry. Larry, Larry thinks up stuff like this. He, he lies awake at night with a notepad by his bed and thinks of stuff like this. Uh, how about this one? Hallowed post-meridian. Oh, holy night. Very good. And then here's one that's a little more secular. Okay, Perfect for today. Homo sapien of crystallized vapor. Frosty the snowman. <laughs> you guys are good. You guys are good. Now that your brain's warmed up, we're going to begin in a little more serious vein this morning. We're encouraged in the Word of God to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It says that in Mark chapter 12, verse 30. The part we seem to ignore sometimes is our mind. We think that faith is all about feelings. So I really want you to focus this morning. I'm going to do my best to make some of the deep theology that we're going to cover today understandable, but I'm going to challenge you to think deeply in the process. The richness and depth of some of the testimonies of gratitude that I heard just a few weeks ago here in our fifth Sunday service encourages me that this fellowship is very capable of thinking deeply about spiritual truths. We need to think deeply about the truths that are presented in Scripture. And if a study released earlier this year is any indication, a lot of self-described Christians don't love the Lord with all their mind or they could not possibly hold some of the beliefs they claim to hold. There was a study called the State of Theology Study. Anybody read about that? Maybe a couple of you have. 
And some of the things it reveals are not surprising at all. For example, 52% of Americans in general agree that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Now that's not surprising. It's maybe a little sad, but it's not a shock at all. Or this statement, the Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. 48% of Americans agree with this statement. And then there's this statement, religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It's not about objective truth. 54% of people agree with that. But here's another challenge. 13% of evangelicals also agree with this statement. So what's sad and even disturbing in some ways is what we find when we break down this survey, not by what the American population at large believes, that won't really be a big surprise to most of us, but what self-described evangelical Christians believe. How about this? Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. 46%, almost half, of evangelical Christians said that they agree with that statement. And then here's another one. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. More than half of evangelicals agree with this. Now let's be clear here. The Bible teaches that Jesus, God the Son, eternally existed as part of the Trinity before the beginning of time. Jesus was not created by God. Now Jehovah's Witnesses kind of believe that, but not Christians. John chapter 1, verse 1 tells us, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And just in case uh, there's any doubt about to whom John is referring in this, we see in uh, chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh. The Word is Jesus, right? And dwelt among us. Let's return to a statement we looked at just a moment ago. 52% of Americans in general agree that Jesus was a great teacher but he was not God. But the sad thing is that 30%, almost a third, one in three evangelical Christians agree with this statement as well. And this is why this morning what I would like to do is think this morning on this third Sunday of Advent about the incarnation, which is at the heart of the Christmas story, the season that we're celebrating, and the rich theology of this absolutely crucial belief that we have as Christians. Now, you know, there are some things that are critical for us to believe. This is one of those critical things. It's a non-negotiable. It's an essential belief. If we don't believe that Jesus is indeed God with us, God in the flesh, then whatever Jesus we believe in is not qualified to save us from our sins. And we believe in him in vain. Think about this. When you think about someone who's condescending toward you, you would think of typically somebody who's kind of looking down on you, right? Someone who thinks they're better than you. Maybe they're smarter than you, and they treat you that way. A person who's condescending towards you usually makes you feel small and unimportant or maybe stupid. Generally, that kind of attitude annoys us, doesn't it? Or it aggravates us, or it maybe even offends us. None of us has the right to make someone feel small and unimportant. But at Christmas time, we remember the one who, by condescending, rather than making us feel small, declared that we are precious and valuable to him. This is the one who had every right to look down on us 
to make us feel small because he's truly so much bigger, so much better, so much smarter, and so much more powerful, so much holier than we are. This morning we're looking at what it means in Scripture related to the Incarnation when Jesus said he emptied himself, or some versions say he made himself of no reputation, or as the title of this morning's message, he made himself nothing. Now there's a story I want to tell you. I don't know if this is a true story or not. So if it's not true, it's a good illustration. And if it is true, it's a good illustration. But this is the story of a man named Sam. And Sam had pretty wild hair and wore a t-shirt with holes in it and uh, jeans and no shoes. And this was kind of his wardrobe for his full four years of college. He's very intelligent. He's a little bit strange, but very bright. And he became a Christian while attending college. And across the street from the campus is a well-dressed, very conservative church. And they want to develop a ministry to students, but they're not quite sure how, how to go about it. And so one day, Sam decides to go to church there. He walks up, and he doesn't have shoes. He has his ripped jeans and his T-shirt and his wild hair, and the service has already started. So Sam starts to walk down the aisle looking for a seat. The church is completely packed, and he can't find a seat. And so now... People are kind of looking around and being a little bit uncomfortable, but no one says anything. So Sam gets closer to the pulpit. He's walking down the middle of the aisle, and the service is going on. And when he realized there's no seats, he just kind of squats down and sits on the carpet right there on the floor in front of the pulpit. Now, this may be perfectly acceptable behavior at a college fellowship. I think it'd probably be perfectly acceptable behavior here at TCF. I would hope it would. But this had never happened in this church before. By now, the people are really kind of uptight, and you can kind of feel the tension in the air. And about this time, the minister realizes that way in the back of the church, there's a deacon who's making his way towards Sam. He's walking up slowly. He's in his 80s. He has silver gray hair. He has a three-piece suit, very godly man, very elegant man, classy, very dignified. And he walks with a cane, and as he starts walking toward this young man, everyone's thinking to themselves, you know, you can't blame him for what he's going to do. Some of them are thinking, he's going to you know, say, come on, we're going to get you, don't, don't sit here, that's not cool. It takes a long time for the deacon to reach the young man, and the church is completely silent, except for the clicking of the man's cane. All eyes are focused on him. The minister can't even preach the sermon until the deacon does what he has to do, and now they see this elderly man drop his cane on the floor, and with great difficulty, he lowers himself and sits down next to Sam, and worships with him so he won't feel alone. Everybody in the church chokes up with emotion. When the minister regains control, he says, what I'm about to preach, you'll never remember. What you have just seen, you'll never forget. Isn't that a great story? Again, whether it's true or not, it illustrates something. Because Jesus did that for us. He was Emmanuel, God with us and he demonstrated his love toward us by joining us on the floor on the carpet in our lives he condescended to leave his throne in glory to become flesh in christ jesus and live a perfect and sinless life among us so we could see and remember what god is like and then he took of course that punishment upon himself that we deserved for our sins so when we think of the word condescend, in our typical usage, it's always some one person looking down upon another, right? 
and it's thus seen as a negative. But the definition of condescend actually includes more meanings than this. The first meaning of it, as you see on the screen there, is to act graciously toward another or others regarded as being on a lower level. That's what Jesus did. The way we usually think of it is the second part of number one there, behave patronizingly. That's the meaning we usually think of. So God stooped to our level in Jesus, the Word made flesh who dwelt among us. We see this reality written of in what scholars believe is an early Christian hymn. It's known as the Carmen Christi. It's the hymn to Christ. And we see this, and some of your Bibles uh, might even have this indented to set it apart as poetry in the midst of Paul's prose. We find this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. So if you have your Bibles this morning, you want to uh, be in that spot because we're going to spend a lot of time there. Let me read this passage to you, beginning with verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Some versions of this say, have this attitude in yourselves. This idea at the beginning of this passage is important to help us understand the whole context of these verses. This is an admonition to emulate, to be like Jesus in our attitudes, in our minds. This is clearly a very important part of this passage. In other words, think like this, be like this. And it's what Paul hopes the Philippians will understand and imitate. But in the midst of this encouragement, which is the primary context of this, to be humble in ourselves, Paul also highlights some things that the early church clearly assumed about Jesus, about who he was, about who he is, about his nature, about his deity. And we're going to look at that in a moment. Now, there are some stories that are just too good to be true. It's a real temptation for us, especially in this age of social media and things we find online, to repeat stories that support something we believe in, whether they're true or not. And this story I'm about to tell you is one of those stories that really makes a very good sermon illustration, but the problem is, as it's been told before, maybe not here, but in many places, it's not entirely true. But I tell you this story today to illustrate, again, this attitude that we're looking at today, which is the true part of this story. There was a man named Leonard Dober, And he was part of a missions-minded fellowship of Moravian Christians in 1731. He'd heard about the plight of the slaves in the Caribbean islands known as the West Indies. And he had a strong sense of calling to be a missionary among these slaves. But he was told at first that no missionary could be, uh, no one could be a missionary in St. Thomas, West Indies without first becoming a slave. Here's where the truth of this story often gets embellished. Now, the embellished story, the story that's kind of true but not completely true, 
is the one that gets told the most because it seems more moving and powerful and convicting. The embellished version says that Leonard and his companion David Nitchman traveled to the West Indies and sold themselves into slavery, where they spent the rest of their lives living and working as slaves and preaching the gospel to their fellow slaves with great results. Now, the true story is just as good because what does the Bible tell us that the Lord looks on? He looks on our hearts. He looks on our attitudes. It's our willingness that God desires. So Dober and Nitchman truly were willing to sell themselves into slavery, and they began their journey through Europe toward the Caribbean with the clear intention of doing this. Now that's amazing enough all by itself. They were going to do it. They planned to do it. This was a real thing. However, upon reaching Denmark on their way to the West Indies, they learned that no white man was allowed to work as a slave in the West Indies. But they went anyway, and they established a mission that existed for 50 years before any other church arrived on the scene, and this work eventually resulted in 13,000 new followers of Christ. This story illustrates what Paul told us of Jesus, doesn't it? He made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. And at Christmas time, when we ponder the amazing doctrine of the incarnation, about the one that the apostle John called the word made flesh who dwelt among us, it's good for us to dig deeply into this reality and ponder some of the biblical truths about what this means and what it doesn't mean for Jesus to empty himself or make himself nothing. Again, we have to consider the context of this passage that we're looking at. So let's take just a moment to look at what Paul was saying to the Philippians just before the verses 5 through 11 that we read, just before the Carmen Christi, the hymn to Christ, in Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. So if you're still in Philippians, just back up a few verses. And it says there, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Then in the midst of his admonition on counting others more important than yourselves, Paul gives us this illustration of what kind of attitude that we're supposed to have. If we're to be like Christ, and if we are look not to our own interests, but to the interests of others, if we're to humbly count others as more significant than ourselves, one of the most important ways that we can do that is to follow Jesus' example of humility. All of the Carmen Christi, the hymn to Christ, is an illustration of what it looks like to act humbly, to give one's life, in the service of other. As it says in Philippians 2.5, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Or in another version, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And what an attitude it is. Paul expands on this idea. Now think about this. You and I have every reason to be humble. We may have talents. We may have gifts. We may have some authority or some power or some position. We may have many things that others, maybe most others, don't have. But none of those things are things we have because of anything in and of ourselves. 
Any talent we have is from God. Any gift, any good thing we have is from God. Any authority or power or position we have is from God. But think of this. Jesus is God, God the Son. Even before the incarnation, even before he took on flesh, Paul affirms this truth in this passage, understood and celebrated in this hymn. He refers to Jesus as being in the form of God. Now, form here is the Greek word morphe. And in some of your translations, it's translated nature. And the word nature in verses 6 and 7 is a crucial term in this passage. This word, which is translated form in the King James and the New American Standard and ESV, stresses the inner essence of reality of that with which it is associated. Christ Jesus, Paul said, is of the very essence, the very morphe of God, and in his incarnation he embraced perfect humanity. His complete and absolute deity is here carefully stressed by the apostles. So stick with me here, folks. I told you this morning you're going to have to think, and we're getting into the thinking, thinking part, okay? So when Jesus existed in the form or nature of God, and we read that what Paul told us here, the idea is that Jesus always was God. He always was God. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. That's why the statement that we looked at earlier that said that Jesus was created by God is not true. Before he became flesh, Jesus was already God the Son in a glorified state with God the Father. And the fact that Christ in his human form showed us God presupposes his being God at all times. He never claimed to be something without really being that in his essence. If he had, he would have been making a false claim. Before his incarnation, Jesus was in the form, the essence, the nature of God. After his incarnation, he was still in the form, the nature, the essence of God. Despite the fact that he also at that point took on flesh. Despite the fact that he had condescended voluntarily by his own loving choice to take on human form. It means Jesus was truly God from eternity past throughout his life on earth and after his resurrection and ascension. There was a mystical union of the two beings, the two natures, fully God and fully man. It means he never, never gave up any part of his divinity to become a real human being. Though he retained true deity, Jesus took upon himself the true essence of a servant. And the word there is actually slave. We all know what that means. That's the Greek form of the word doulos, or a form of the Greek word doulos. In order to be a slave, however, he had to become a man. And he had to appear in the likeness of a man. And to do this, he had to empty himself or make himself nothing, or make himself of no reputation. He had to lay aside his privileges as God. At the end of verse 6 in Philippians chapter 2, we see another aspect of this. Some who have power or wealth or authority want to hang on to it at all costs. We have seen this with people who have wealth or power or authority throughout human history. Yet, here we have Jesus, who didn't just have wealth or power or authority over a puny country or a vault of gold or millions of subjects, he was the king of kings. He was the Lord of lords, the maker of the universe. He had everything because he created everything. 
everything belongs to him. He not only didn't see this as something he needed to hang on to, because they're going to try to take it away from me, but he voluntarily made himself nothing, emptied himself. He could have remained on the throne at the right hand of the Father. Yes, we see at the end of this passage, that's where he ends up, isn't it? But he made himself nothing during his time on earth. He emptied himself of the proper recognition that he had with the Father as God who is spirit and entered into the world of men, most of whom did not recognize him for who he was. The original language here indicates that humanity did not displace deity in his personality. Rather, he took upon himself voluntarily, in addition to his pre-incarnate condition, something which veiled his deity. Proper recognition is called doxa, glory, praise. In the form of man and servant, he lacked the recognition among men that he had with the Father. This voluntary humiliation of Christ began with the incarnation and was carried through to his crucifixion. What an amazing thought that is, isn't it? His proper, his rightful place was glory. He was continually receiving praise and honor and glory from the angels in a glorified state that we can only imagine. But he chose to lay that aside for 33 of our years, to live among us, to suffer and die for us. Think about this too, after all the fanfare of the very first Christmas, okay, there was a lot of stuff happened, right? There was the angels, there were the shepherds, there was the star, all that. And then we see a brief glimpse of Jesus at age 12 in Scripture. But other than that, for 30 years, Jesus lived in obscurity. He was just an ordinary boy. And later he was a young man in an ordinary family of laborers. He ate simple meals, and he lived the often hard life of a first century peasant. He experienced all the things that we sometimes find challenging. Hunger, thirst, waiting, feeling different, weariness, petty annoyances, and misunderstandings. He lived a life of ordinary days so that he could fully enter our ordinary lives, to fully experience the things that we do. He didn't come as a tourist. He didn't come to just catch the highlights and take a few snapshots to remember us by. He became one of us in the most complete sense of the word. He came not just to visit us, to become one of us. He came to see life through our eyes, to cry and to laugh, to be shamed and to be loved. And eventually, his life showed him to be our Savior. They shall call him Emmanuel, the prophet Isaiah said, which means God with us, not just for those three years, of adoring crowds dogging his steps, not just for those agonizing hours surrounding his death, but for all the years that came before, the ones that he lived in holy obscurity. He did not treat equality with God, Scripture tells us. His genuine, very real right to glory as something he should hang on to. But he made himself nothing. He made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself. He took the form, the very essence of a human slave. Writing prophetically of Jesus, we see in Isaiah 53, he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He didn't stand out in the crowd. He was just another guy. Think of the contrast of this reality 
of Jesus' existence on earth with the glory that he had in heaven with God the Father before this. That brings us to verse 7 of Philippians 2, the phrase translated in some versions, which is the most literal translation, he emptied himself. We see this translated in different ways in different translations. For example, the King James and New King James say, he made himself of no reputation. The ESV and the NIV both say, he made himself nothing. The New American Standard said he emptied himself. But the New American Standard also has a footnote explaining that this means he laid aside his privileges. The New Living Translation said he gave up his divine privileges. And even a paraphrase, the message paraphrase says he set aside the privileges of deity. So though the New American Standard is probably the most literal translation of the original language here, it does in fact mean he emptied himself. It's unfortunate what's happened with this phrase because rather than receive this amazing paradox as something that's clearly taught throughout the New Testament, fully God and fully man, and for us to live with this remarkable mystery throughout church history, too many people have attempted to explain this phrase away by teaching that Jesus somehow became less divine, less than fully God during the incarnation, or even that he was a created being or or, uh, simply human and not God the Son. So let's clear that up right away, my brothers and sisters. The term emptied, as used by Paul, is always used by Paul in a metaphorical sense. Let me give you another example of where Paul uses this. In Romans chapter 4, verse 13, he writes, For it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, if it's the adherents of the law who are to be heirs. Faith is null and the promise is void. Now here, the word void is the same word that's translated as emptied in the passage of Philippians 2 that we're looking at. It's clear in this passage in Romans, Paul can't be talking about a literal emptying of faith, but a metaphorical making empty. So it is here in Philippians 2, the passage that we're looking at. So Paul is not saying that Jesus ceased to be God, but that, that he voluntarily laid aside the privileges that were his. When Jesus walked the earth, people didn't see him as a glorious heavenly being. His glory was hidden. It was veiled, with one single exception, of course, and that's during the transfiguration, where a chosen few saw him in his glorious state. But the rest of mankind looked at him as a normal everyday guy, nothing exceptional in his outward appearance. So Paul's not teaching us here that Jesus somehow became 50% God and 50% man, or 75% God and 25% man, or reverse of those percentages. Paul's assumption throughout this passage is that the Philippians knew and believed that Jesus was all God and all man, both at the same time. He's simply illustrating the ultimate example of humility that we are to emulate. A 100% God who takes on the additional nature of human flesh and becomes 100% man at the same time without divesting himself of any divinity. But still, people have for centuries insisted on trying to undeify Jesus. That's kind of the original heresy. Jesus wasn't God. And when you look at Jesus that way, he can't do anything. Some of them may be well-meaning, in this case at least, simply trying to understand better the incarnation and all of its implications. Can we admit that this is kind of a challenge to our finite minds? 
can we admit that it's hard for us to fully understand how an all-knowing God can be said to grow in wisdom? Scripture tells us that about Jesus, that he grew in wisdom. Or that Jesus doesn't know the day or the hour of his own return to earth. Can we admit that that's kind of a mystery and that's kind of hard for us to grasp? Okay, but let's live with that. To even try to explore these questions today in this sermon would be a rabbit trail. We're not going to go there. But the pity was that men in their zeal for rationalization often lost sight of the historic facts of faith because they were willing to surrender what they could not immediately rationalize. We don't have time to mention all of the heresies that have come from a wrong interpretation of this passage. Unfortunately, even in our day, popular preachers and authors have bought into this heresy again. There's one popular preacher who embraces a doctrine which teaches that during his earthly ministry, Jesus operated only as a man and not God. He claims that Christ literally laid aside his deity. He says, and I quote, Jesus performed miracles, wonders, and signs as a man in right relationship to God, not as God. And he writes elsewhere, he laid his divinity aside as he sought to fulfill the assignment given to him by the Father. Now, I'm certain that this teacher would claim that he's not denying the divinity of Christ, but can you see with a quote like that above how you could assume that? How he is, in fact, denying the deity of Christ? So this denial of Jesus' divinity during his earthly ministry is the same as word of faith preachers denial of Jesus deity when he died on the cross they claim he lost his divinity and suffered in hell as a man but both denials are blatant heresy my brothers and sisters a right understanding of deity of godness if you will has certain necessary definitions so again think with me here okay think with me here the most basic definition is eternal, non-contingent existence. Okay? Non-contingent means God's eternal existence and all of His attributes are not contingent. That means they are not dependent. They don't depend on anything or anyone. God is self-existent. Okay? Now, theologians call that aseity. God is the only one who has this. The only one. If God existed forever and eternity passed before anyone else existed or anything else existed, there's nothing outside of God that could have caused his existence. This means that God, as God, is not dependent on anything outside of himself. This relates to the false teaching we're looking at now in the false idea that says when Jesus emptied himself, he somehow became undeity or somewhat less than fully God then Christ's deity is contingent. Are you with me? It goes away, this preacher would say, during the incarnation only to return later. Now, something that comes and goes is not eternal and non-contingent. If Jesus' divinity can be laid aside, then it was never true divinity. Deity is not an attribute that comes and goes. It either is or is not. If it's lost and then regained, it's contingent. It's dependent, right? And if it's contingent, then it's not true divinity. Anything less, as we've seen, can lead to all different kinds of heresy. If divinity can be gained, then created man can possibly 
attain to it. And the Bible clearly rejects this idea. So if divinity can be laid aside, it is not divinity. If God laid aside one of his attributes, the immutable, that is the unchangeable, undergoes a mutation. The infinite suddenly stops being infinite. It would be the end of the universe. God cannot stop being God and still be God. So we can't talk properly of God laying aside his deity to take humanity upon himself. So if Jesus laid aside divinity, that would be proof that he never had true divinity. Hebrews tells us in chapter 13, verse 8, that Jesus Christ is what? The same yesterday, today, and forever. And Malachi quotes God the Father himself, for I, the Lord, do not change. So the quotes we just read from this well-known pastor revealed him to be a false teacher because it's a de facto denial of the deity of Christ. So what does Philippians 2.7 imply that Jesus did empty himself of? The answer is clearly not divinity. That's why we spent these moments on this. Okay, That's eternal. It can't be compromised. What Jesus laid aside were his divine prerogatives, his divine rights. Paul's point assumed his godness, his divinity. But it was about Christ's humility. The true doctrine of Christ is that in the incarnation, He took upon himself humanity, human flesh, not that he laid aside deity. So Jesus, the word made flesh, is fully human and fully God. It's interesting that this teacher I quoted a few moments ago claims that the Holy Spirit has led him off the map. That's a direct quote. I think he's right on that point. I think he is off the map. Our map as believers in Christ is the Holy Spirit-inspired Bible. The Holy Spirit never leads God's people off the map that he has given us. The faith once delivered for all to the saints. If you're off this map, let me tell you, it's some other spirit that has led you there. So as we consider this passage, it's important once again to consider the entire context. The key point in this emptying of himself that Paul was emphasizing about Jesus was servanthood. It was humility. This was an admonition to be like Jesus in his humble laying aside of his privileges. This was an encouragement to us to not cling to what we think our rights are. Though Paul assumes the understanding of the early church in this passage, and thus he references some of these key theological themes that we've looked at about Christ's nature, his preexistence, Paul's point is that if Jesus, who was in fact God the Son, who did in fact live a glorified existence prior to the incarnation, if Jesus, that same Jesus can stoop, if he can condescend to let all of that go and to live the humble existence of his creatures, that's what we are. We're his creatures. He made us. Rather than the right that he had to live as our creator with all of that accompanying glory, all of the accompanying privileges, then we can, in our less glorious, less privileged existence, certainly let go of our pride, certainly let go of our rights, and have the same attitude in ourselves that Jesus had. This is a key part of the spirit of Christmas. This is the wonder of the incarnation. This is the reality of the Word, God the Son made flesh who lived among us and humbled himself further by subjecting himself to a slave's death for you and for me. He made himself nothing, 
have this attitude in yourself, Paul tells us. So on this third Sunday of Advent, when we lit the candle of joy, we can remember this from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, that we can look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Heavenly Father, we are indeed grateful that Jesus, God the Son, saw fit to become the Word made flesh, to dwell among us, to live a sinless life, and pay the penalty for our sin. And Father, we want to heed Paul's admonition this morning that we would be like Jesus, that we would have this attitude in ourselves, that we would have an attitude of humility that allows us to lay aside the things that we think are our rights when we only have rights that are given to us by you. And Lord, that we would emulate that model of humility that Jesus has demonstrated by becoming flesh and going to the cross for us in Jesus' name. Amen.